Howdy and welcome to the Ben Nevada's podcast. Today we are joined by Ian Bell. Ian is a uh, outside of just you know normal person things, I suppose. A, a very well known powerlifter, uh, professional, set multiple world records, I believe, and won multiple world championships. Uh, he has been on the top of the powerlifting world for the ninety three, and then now the. I guess the hundred kilo weight class. Um, so 105, there you go. And so welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited, excited to have this conversation with you. I was listening to your podcast, some earlier ones, and I feel like I'm obligated just to say, to say hook them before we get started too. Oh man. I think, I think <laughs> unfortunately, yes, it's appropriate. Yeah, because I feel like pretty much everybody's been Aggies, but it is, yeah, it is yeah. appropriate. So <laughs> to get, I mean, I want to start from the very beginning. I, I don't necessarily know you uh, very well. I just kind of know you through passing and then through the little time that, you know, the, the few very small conversations that we've had over the years. Uh, but I want to go back to the, very, to the very start. I know that you're from San Antonio. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Is that yeah. where you were born and raised? Or I know your, your dad's in the military, so then I would imagine moves around a little bit. Yeah, so my dad was in the Air Force. Um, so I was actually born overseas. And the first, I think, four or five years of my life were overseas. So born in the Netherlands, um, was there for six months, then moved to Germany, was there for about, uh, I think, three or four years, and then moved to North Dakota up in Minot Air Force Base, was there for another three to four years, um, and then came down to Texas, came to San Antonio, and was there until I went off to college. And what was it like growing up, I guess, with a military dad and going through that, that lifestyle? I mean, the, the constant travel. I mean, it, you, you were so young. Did, did it make an influence whatsoever? Is that part of the reason you're in Tokyo and like have that desire to travel travel um i think the the immediate impact i had on me is kind of how it um perspective on on relationships i guess and i got really good at just you know in, ending relationships because and friendships because you kind of had to you know three or four years and you're gonna have to move and I, you know when i was like a you know a baby or a kid like up to four years old no big deal but i remember leaving north dakota like I'm like, you know, six, seven, eight years old or whatever. Um, so you're actually getting to have the emotional capacity to have some actual friendships. So having to say goodbye, like I, got, I feel like I got really good. Not, I, I'll take that back. Not good at saying goodbye, but just good at just like, boom, just like cutting off people. And that felt like a behavior I had to unlearn as I became an adult of like, you know, not just cutting off people, but both giving goodbyes like it's time and space and having like some real endings with friendships if I'm going to be moving to a different place or practicing staying in contact with people, um, which I'm really trying to do now as I moved over here to Japan. That is a hell of a lesson, I think, to to learn and a hard one to unlearn. I think Sometimes I feel like people want that that ability to be able to cut people off easily and just walk away, but in reality, I think 
that would hurt a lot of relationships, I'd imagine. And obviously you're, you're conscious of it. Is it something that you've kind of been able to clean up? I don't know if clean up is the right term, but or the right phrase, but something that you've been able to, I guess, grow from more recently, or is it still a process that you're in? Um, I mean, I would definitely say it's still a process because I feel like we're all we're all always in process. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's fair. Uh, but it's definitely something I feel like I've gotten a lot better at. Um, especially within, you know, maybe the last five or six years. Um, but like that was just like a lot of intentional and conscious thought and effort, right? Cause like my default is like, if I move away from you, um, like it's just kind of over, right? Because when I was a kid, if I moved away from you, I'm never going to see you again. And I have no way of contacting you. Like, especially like that was before like social media popped off, right? I remember when MySpace, first came up and I was like, oh, like, let me try and find my friend back from North Dakota. But I didn't talk to him like, whatever, four or five years. So it's almost like that person is a stranger at that point. But yeah, so like, it's always a lot of intentional and conscious effort for me. And I, I notice if I'm starting to stray away from people that I want to stay close to, I have to be aware of that, acknowledge it, and then make the decision like, all right, let me reach out right now. And let me try to have a conversation with this person. I mean, that takes a lot of self-awareness. I mean, I, I know that I definitely struggle in that world as well. And I didn't necessarily move around a lot. I, I don't know where that necessarily comes from. But being connected with people, is it's difficult, oddly. Like, we are such community-based species that I feel like it should be easier. But I guess we gravitate towards what we can see in front of us, and it's easier not to, to reach out to others. But something as simple as like writing a, a letter or something like that can you know, keep that relationship cultivated and it's hard to do yeah absolutely it's 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 not easy but i think you know like anything else the more you practice it the easier it becomes and you said that's part of the reason that you're in tokyo what why are you in tokyo um so i'm actually down in i'm in okinawa which is a little a little island off the southern coast of japan um so, the, I mean, this actually also goes to kind of how I was raised and being in a military family. My mom has worked for the Air Force for 30 plus years. Um, my dad was active duty for 24 years. Um, both of my grandfathers in the military, uncles, cousins, all that. Gosh. Um, so that, that population has always been, you know, really personal to me, right? Because, you know, just part of my family. Um, and just kind of hearing the experiences of my father and his friends and my grandfathers, um, it's always a population in the system I wanted to get into and to hopefully provide, um, you know, services and be of service to that population. So what are you what are you doing out there right like, now? So out here, I'm a, I'm an embedded social worker. So I'm doing I'm kind of in the squadrons in the units. Um, around the flights, um, providing mental health services, um, doing outreach, doing classes, running groups, uh, doing briefings for command teams about mental health subjects or kind of how people are doing mental health trends within the squadrons. Um, that is super yeah. freaking so, cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty awesome opportunity. I saw the job and I was like, man, that'd be, be pretty dope to be able to live in Japan and 
you know, work with a population I've always wanted to work with and do a lot of lot, a lot of outreach with people and just kind of psychoeducation and, and building community and all that. Wow. So this really is kind of like the perfect job. I, I was going to say, how, like, what a hell of a setup, man. You get to accomplish yeah, some life goals and also move to a, a, I would imagine, it's just an amazing place. Are you working through the military or is it, are you a contractor? Uh, yeah, working working with the Air Force. Or the Air Force, I should say. So are you, have, did you commission? No, no, no. So I'm, I'm still a civilian out here. Very cool. Gotcha. Still, still a civilian. And yeah, it's been a, it's been an awesome opportunity. I've, I've learned a lot. Um, and yeah, it's been funny. I moved out here and you know, I'm on like this tiny, tiny island. When you look at it on a map, it's just like a speck, like on the globe. Um, but there's a lot of powerlifters out here and they got a couple powerlifting gyms. Um, Hiro Isagawa, which is, he's one of the greatest Japanese powerlifters, um, ever. One of the greatest powerlifters ever, a legend. He's on the island. He has a gym out here. And, um, you know, I was at a meet two weeks ago coaching you know 10 10 people uh, from the gym that i've been training at so yeah i still got i still got that pile of in uh, it's still heavy out here yeah i had i had no idea I, I didn't even know who that guy was until i saw him on your story i still don't really know um who he is like his impact or anything like that but it's kind of cool you're still coaching out there as well i didn't really know that you coached at all to be honest with you um are, are you still competing as well yeah, still competing. Um, I had Worlds, I guess it was like a month ago at this point. Um, so yeah, it was it was a weird process kind of getting ready for that meet because I moved over here in September. And then as soon as I got here, I had like seven weeks to get ready for Worlds. Um, two of those weeks, I had a quarantine because I just flew across you know, the world and Damn. we're in the middle of a pandemic. So I had to do that. So I had to get creative. And then just trying to find a place to train that had the right equipment. You know, a, a lot of the a lot of the base gyms have those old you know hammer strength power racks with the, yeah. the deep V cups, not really conducive for equip training. Um, so that was a that was a struggle trying to find a place to train. So I felt like I got three good weeks of training in uh, for that meet. Which uh, I feel like at this point I've been doing it for a while. That's really all I need um, to be uh, be ready enough to yeah. compete. How long have you been competing? Uh man, I was thinking about this yesterday. I've been competing for seventeen years. Hot damn! Yeah, that is it's crazy. Experience. It's 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 over half of my life, which is wild to think about. So I mean, I, I have I feel like I have several different questions and, and several different ways we can go. I, I want to know, are there different cues that are like the, are you learning a new style of lifting or like being around this guy who's one of the greatest? Are, are there new things that you're learning from being in this new environment that maybe not the typical American way to lift? Um, or are you still kind of doing what you do? Being in this for 17 years, I mean, you definitely know your body and the way things kind of work. So are there things that so far you've been able to take away? Um, I feel like I'm still kind of doing, doing what I do. Um, but I'm trying to start having these conversations with, with, you know, legends like hero. I'm like, what, you know, what is 
something I could possibly do different that might be helpful. Um, and then trying to learn from some other lifters um, that I've been training with um, here on island. Um, so, yeah, I'm always trying to constantly learn and, and see what what I can do differently because, you know, you, you have to because your body changes. I'm definitely not the same lifter I am now that I was when I was 25 or 21 or 16. You know, I've done my training has evolved over that time. And uh, but yeah, but mainly still still kind of doing what I do and still listening to my pops, still listening to Gene Bell and, and um, having him trying to keep me on track. I mean, I, I think that also deserves to be mentioned. Like you have. Yes, you have Hero. Well, one of the powerlifting greats, but you also have your dad, also one of the powerlifting greats. It, I mean, you already have such a an amazing coach on one end, and so I mean, anything I get, I don't know what what else he could add. I mean, you already have such a great person to kind of come back to. And does he write? Does your dad write your training? And do you still send him videos? And how involved is he with your training? Still heavily involved. Um, so he doesn't really write my training anymore. I would say up until I went to college, he was writing my stuff. Um, but then, you know, at, by the time I went to college, I've been lifting for six years already. Um, so, like, I feel like I was able to write my own training and putting it in, into, like, you know, a nice Excel format. But it was basically, you know, what everything my dad had taught me. So my dad was just kind of writing my training through me. I was just kind of doing it, but still to this day, you know, I'm sending him videos every single week, trying to get feedback, you know, planning, planning for these meets, um, planning what I need to do for, for, you know, my um, body weight management and for mobility and for recovery. And I think that's why I'm in kind of a different position because, you know, in my opinion, Gene Bell is the greatest lifter ever in the history of powerlifting. And so I feel like I can always go back to that as my foundation. And if I have that, I don't feel like I need to ask too many questions outside of that. That's fair. It's definitely reasonable. And so, I mean, looking back 17 years ago when you first started, was it ever an expectation? I mean, having a father who, I would imagine he was still lifting at that time, right? Um, 17 years ago. I don't know. I don't know when he retired, but having him there when you're growing up and watching him, lift was it kind of an expectation that you were also going to lift or is it something that you found and then loved yeah there was there was no expectation <laughs> there was no expectation i think when i was a kid i wasn't really that into sports um i was more of like you know sit down and read harry potter and you know science books and all that good stuff and chill out and watch, a, watch some science fiction movies. That's really what I was into when I was a kid. But I did sports just because, you know, my parents wanted me to have, like, a variety of experiences growing up and figure out what I liked. Um, but there was no expectation, but I grew up around the sport, you know, as a, as a little baby, as a kid. You know, you know, my mom was pushing me around in the stroller at my dad's meets, or I was parked in the stroller and other people watching me as both of my parents competed. Um, which was happening in the Netherlands. So I didn't fall in love with powerlifting or decided that's what I wanted to do. And so I started lifting weights, like for football. Um, so I had always like, you know, I started working out with my dad because I wanted to be good at football. 
um, and this was around like middle school. And as I started lifting weights for football, I noticed I like lifting the weights more than actually playing football and running and doing all that stuff. And I was aware of what powerlifting was. I was like, you know what? I might as well try it out to see if I like it. And that first meet, like I did, just didn't look back after that. Just loved everything about it. Um, yeah, but there was never any expectation. My dad didn't like push me. I was like, you know, you need to do this or you could be so great or anything like that. Um, he was like, hey, you know, if you want to do it, I'll definitely help you. And, you know, this is an opportunity. And I think you could be really good at it, but, you know, kind of whatever you want to do. It's funny because, like, I there would be times where, you know, I didn't want to go to the gym and train. And this is even, like, in high school, like 15, 16, 17. And my dad never was like, no, you need to go to the gym, blah, blah, blah. He was like, all right, you know, that's what you want to do. It's cool. So everything felt like my decision. And I think that's what's led to me doing it still to this day. Otherwise, you know, I feel like a lot of times you have a lot of parents pushing kids to do sports that the kid might be good at, but they really don't want to do, but it's expected from the parent. So then the kid feels like they have to. And then by the time they finish high school, when they could have been a D one athlete, they end up having been burnt out and they're done with the sport versus someone who makes it like, just not, it's a lifestyle, right? It was your decision to continue to lift weights and, you know, whether you take time off or not, it's still such a big part of your life. And I think that's what not having that expectation from a parent is probably what leads more towards success um, than being forced on the kid. Yeah, I mean, no, you know, no expectations to do a certain sport. But once I decided this is what I wanted to do, just all the support and all the information, which was, you know, I can't thank them enough for that. But yeah, that piece of burnout you're speaking to, I think, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, from fourth grade on, you see that a lot in Texas, you know, just kids getting to high school and just already being burnt out because they've been specializing in football or basketball or whatever, you know, since they were five years old and their parents would just kind of force them into that. And like, you need to be good at this and we're hiring you private coaches and you're going to summer camps and you're going to seven on seven and you, you know, all this stuff. Um, you see that a lot where just like people are just done with all sports kind of after that experience. That is, it's unfortunate, but it's very, very true. But I mean, I assume that it was the same idea with the military, even, I mean, even having both parents in the military, was there an expectation or a, a push at all to go to the military? Um, a slight push. Okay. <laughs> I think that was a little different. A slight push. Um, you know, and I think when you have that slight push, sometimes as a kid, you kind of think, well, well, maybe this is my idea. Uh, maybe I actually do want to do it. And so, yeah, I mean, I was in ROTC when I was in high school. Um, I applied to go to the Air Force Academy, um, you know, which is a whole process in itself. I got a letter from my congressman. I took a fitness test. I did all these steps. And the last step is they fly out a recruiter from the academy to come interview you at your house. And uh, I remember waking up that day, you know, this is senior year of high school, I'm 17. I remember waking up that day and I was like, man, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't want to do this. I don't want to sign up and, and not just be able to do whatever I want to do in college and like have that autonomy and um, have the, you know, a little bit of leeway to make mistakes and, and 
figure out who I am as a person. Um, so I bombed that interview, and the next day I applied to UT. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's funny. Uh, and your time at UT was it? Did it give you that time that you were expecting? Was was it what you expected? Yeah, it was. It was everything that I wanted out of college. Um, I didn't do as well as I wanted to academically, um, but I think I grew a lot socially. Um, you know, I grew a lot of leadership skills, kind of growing the UT team with a lot of the other people that were there at the same time and professionally. Like I grew up in a lot of areas that I wanted to. Um, you know, maybe too much growth socially, <laughs> and that, that probably hurt the academics a little bit. But I feel like usually that's um, how it works, especially when. Being on the team and being in powerlifting, there's so, there's so many good people in, in the community that it's kind of hard not to want to grow that. I mean, I, I was the same way when I first got to and I got to AM and definitely much more social and academic. And part of it was like hanging out with all the guys and people from the team. It was just being able to get out, I suppose, was, was a good feel. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I, was, I had so much... You know, I was always kind of like, you know, the quote unquote good student and like academics is always super important to my family. Um, and so I felt I just kind of let a little bit of that go when I got to college. And I was like, what's really important to me? What are the things that I really wanted to focus on? And when I got to UT, I was like, I really want to focus on, you know, making this powerlifting club like a, a real thing and legit. So I probably spent... I. You know, I don't want to say I spent too much time because like I made a decision to do that, but I prioritized more time into training and to growing the program into making connections with people that could help us grow the program. Um, but yeah, that didn't help with you know not failing OKIM twice or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that 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 community or that that program was huge. I remember when I first got started looking at powerlifting, that was one of the, the biggest places in Texas that was, you know, just a powerhouse in powerlifting. And so at what point, like when you got to UT, how big was the program versus when you left? So when, when I got there, um, there was maybe eight members, um, but usually like five that we saw consistently wow. and there was a couple that were just kind of you know floating out there around campus that we didn't really see and when we when we left um we had we were about 80 strong um, hot damn yeah so it was a good amount of growth and and you know yeah i think our main thing and obviously you know didn't do this by myself i mean preston turner mario leos austin deshane abel escamilla um, I mean, so many other Tiffany Vu. Um, there's a lot of people involved in Tyler Wilburn. A lot of people <laughs> involved in kind of growing this to what it is. But you know, me and Preston, we came to UT together, and we were like, we want to make this a thing, and we want to, you know, create a community where people can feel um, supported, and also create a really competitive atmosphere and, and try to win national championships. Um, so yeah, when when we left, I feel like we created something that was sustainable and that could stick around and 
you know, Longhorn powerlifting is still, I talked to some people a couple weeks ago, they got 90 lifters on the team and you know, they're still trying to out here win some things. So it's good to see. That is awesome. I mean, you, when you, I guess when you also, what kind of helps is when you do, when you see other people in college doing the thing and making and being successful. I know as a high school student watching, and I, I knew, or I guess I saw Preston benching like 700 and he was in college and he was lifting. I was like, you can do this in college? Like what? <laughs> and it just, it was mind boggling to me, but it was, it was nice to be able to say, oh, okay, like there's something after high school. Like that was my big motivator for me was just power, was powerlifting. It's like, where can I go do this? And I mean, you guys attracted a lot of people and probably inspired a lot of people, but you have people who are like Preston, like yourself, like Leos, they're uh, like re- like well known in the powerlifting community and, and able to attract a lot of eyes. And I would imagine you guys get a lot of support from the university. Yeah, I think we got some we got some good support. Um, you know, we kind of had to prove ourselves <laughs> in the, in the beginning, and uh, we had to make some relationships. Um, I don't, you know, we, we got good support at times, you know, we couldn't, we didn't really get good support. I mean, there was a time, I think this was right after we won our first national championship, they kicked us out of our training room. Um, and they put us like in a little closet that had two wrecks. And at that point, we had about 70 people on our team. Damn. Um, so then we had to go through this whole process of, you know, trying to find a new space. What do you um, do in that situation? Like, you show up to the gym and it's only two racks and all of you people and you guys are the the people they I guess they I would assume that they turn to what do you do how do you how do you solve that problem um first we were pissed <laughs> so first we just we were just pissed and we're just like what what the hell is this like we we're out here winning the football team can't win anything we just brought home a national championship like what's the deal um but then it was a process of figuring out all right where can we go and, you know, Kim Beckwith, I got to mention her name, and she was a huge support and resource and kind of grew on the team. And she had connections within the kinesiology department and in the athletics department. And so we were talking with Kim, like, Kim, like, is there, is there another space on campus? We don't want to have people to want to have people to drive, you know, in Austin traffic to try to get to a gym when we're a collegiate powerlifting team. Um, and so she was able to find a space. Um, in an old athletics gym in the stadium and was able to use her connections and networks to get the, you know, get two and a half hours, three times a week um, for us in there. Um, And that's where we're still at today. Wow. And what year was that? It was a sweet gym, man. uh, That was uh, 2013. I believe, yeah, 2013. What made it a sweet gym? Um, the uh, it was just old. It was kind of grimy, you know. It had like brick walls. Later, we found out there was like asbestos in the walls, <laughs> so, so they had to shut it down for a year because it was toxic. Um, yeah, but I like that, man. I like my gyms to make me a little bit sick. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, a little, <laughs> little, little dirty. Yeah, but. The uh, the old like the nineteen I think it's like sixty eight uh, national championship football team like that's where they trained at in the stadium. That is an um, old have, area to be in. 
Yeah, and so in the gym, it said um, on the on old brick wall, it says, Champions Train Here. And I just thought that was so sick. The first time I walked in there, it's like, that's what all, that's all we were about. You know, we were trying to create a championship team environment in an environment where people feel cared for and supported and just to kind of elevate everybody and just, you know, push, push and grind and then recover together and just do it all over again. Yeah, I, I just felt like that wall just kind of encapsulated all of that. So I'll never forget that feeling first walking into, into that gym. It was like, yeah, we're going to do some shit here. And did, right? <laughs> that's, that's pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, leaving that gym, leaving that facility and you know, having, having that mentality or that, uh, that building that culture and having it last, I think are is hard, right? Building it is one thing. Having it last is something mm-hmm. else. When you go back there, do you feel like that same, drive or enthusiasm and mentality that champions are training here and we're pushing hard still exists or do you think it's fallen off? No, I definitely think it still exists. Um, I think what, so, you know, part of that culture is now we have a bunch of lifters that were a part of that team, you know, from like 2010 to 2014, 15 that are still involved with the program. Oh, that's cool. Um, Got to mention Sandra Sebastian, who you know, who coached me, you know, when I was at UT and helped me out of means, um, who's a, a La Tech alum, um, but she was part of part of that too, right? I mean, La Tech is one of the most storied collegiate powerlifting programs in the history of our sport. Oh yeah. She kind of came over to UT and um, moved to Austin and was helping the team and just knew what it took. Knew what it took for people. But yeah, with all that, we have a lot of alumni now who still help and support the team and help out the officers and provide advice, um, help out at meets. So we have like this whole, you know, we have our culture within a team and then we have this whole kind of supportive culture around it um, that they can always reference back to. That motivates me a little bit to go back to A&M and, and help out, you know, and I did it for my high school, but I never did it for A and M. I think it'd be kind of kind of neat. Did you ever go back to your high school and teach at all, or did anything like that? Give back, I suppose. Nah, I I didn't. Um, well, actually, for a little bit because I had a a guy that was training with us. He was in high school, and so I would help him out in high school meets sometimes. Um. But no, my, my high school coach went to another school um, and after I left. And so I never really went back to high school. Um, yeah, I kind of had an interesting journey with piloting in high school. I was I went to two different high schools. The first three years, um, I went to Converse Judson right up in San Antonio. Um, started piloting my sophomore year. My junior year, they were like, you know, you can't look at the school anymore. You don't have an official coach with the school. Because oh. my dad was just helping me. And so I was like, all right, well, fine. Um, I'll try to find a coach to show up at a meet and sit in the stands for five minutes. <laughs> um, so I went to all my coaches. I went to my D-line coach, to the defensive coordinator, to the head coach. They were 
like, no, um, we can't, we can't do it. Don't know what to do for you. And I was like, all right. Um, and I was going to be, you know, starting on the football team that next year. It was going to be my first year on varsity. I was going to be starting. I was hella excited about it. But powerlifting was way more important to me. Um, so I told him, like, hey, I know I got this, you know, starting slot that's going to be happening next fall. If nobody shows up to these meets, you can't guarantee that for me. I'm going to have to switch schools because we have moved to a different house. Um, and so everybody said no. And they're like, oh, okay, I'm leaving at the end of the year. Um, and then they were mad at me. I'm like, what y'all mad at? <laughs> I told y'all. If you said no, I was going to leave. Like, I wasn't kidding about that. Um, but yeah, I ended up going to a different, uh, to New Braunfels Canyon my senior year. Um, and the powerlifting coach there, John Mitchell, um, was, he's like a, he's a legit strength and conditioning coach. Like That name sounds very familiar. Yeah, and he's pretty well known in the community. He's, he's out there. And he had a, a wealth of information that, we, we did a, and that's the first time I did a reverse hyper with what Coach Mitchell. Oh, shit. Um, and I was like, man, like, this is the exercise. I need that. Um, All of that. Yeah. yeah never, never went back, but stayed pretty connected with the UT team um, pretty much up until I, I left and came over here. Did it ever feel surreal to be not just at the national level, but on an international platform, lifting for Team USA, did that ever was that ever a reality to you, or not so much? Uh, yes. <laughs> Look, I never expected to be good when I when I started lifting. That's insane. I, I started I was lifting and I was like, yeah, this shit feels great. I love lifting heavy ass weight, and uh, I like gaining muscle. This is cool. So, like, I had dreams of, like, oh, man, it'd be great to, to win the Texas High School State Championship. Man, what, what a dream that would be. Or it would be great to go to nationals. How awesome would that be? Um, and, like, even a you know, further, further flowing dream was, like, man, what would it be like to go to Worlds? So, one of the big dreams I had, too, was, like, oh, man, I would love to look up the, at the Arnold. Oh. That was like the top one for me in high school. And I remember the first time I got to the Arnold, like I was like having like an out-of-body experience. It was crazy. That is crazy. It was crazy. It's wild when you do something that you that you've always dreamed about. It doesn't feel real, right? I guess that's what surreal means. But it literally didn't feel real. Like it didn't feel like that was me doing all those things. It was crazy. And so I tried to stay even to this day, you know, I went to Worlds uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's still it's still crazy for me that I'm able to do this and, and have these opportunities. And, um, do you feel like it's hard to embody that idea that you are strong and that you are a Team USA athlete at all? Um, I think it was hard for me when I was younger. I was, I did a lot of minimizing, kind of like what I was doing and my accomplishments. And I feel like I put it under the guise of being humble. Um, but as I got a little bit older, I felt like I realized like 
I think I'm just, I'm not giving myself credit for what I'm doing. Um, I'm not, I'm not praising myself enough for kind of what I've been doing. And do you practice that by just, is that positive self-talk that you have to work yourself through over the years? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's it's flipping this, it's self-talk, it's giving credit where credit is due, and it's, you know, recognizing my own achievements. Not to, like, obviously, you know, like, blow my head up, but just be compassionate towards myself, um, and to kind of combat that negative narrative that we have about ourselves sometimes. You know, especially in sports, you 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 gotta think about, like, motivation and drive and blah, 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 and I want to be bigger, I want to be better, I want to be stronger. I can't be complacent. I can't be content. Um, but that becomes a fine line between that and then, like, you're always talking shit to yourself, right? And now you don't feel like you're worthy enough. Um, and you feel like you're never going to be enough, not only as a lifter, but then it starts bleeding into maybe I'm not worthy enough as a person, like all this stuff. So it's like, it's a fine line. It's a tricky balance. I think as I got a little bit older, you know, maybe towards the end of my collegiate career, um, post collegiate career, I had to balance it out a little bit enough and recognize, like, man, I really did that. Like, I really went to the Arnold, and I really did win the Junior Worlds. Or, and let me just kind of let that soak in for me that I accomplished something that, that I dreamed of doing. Not only that you dreamed of doing, but something that very few people ever get to. And it is a very fine line. And I think it's something that's hard for a lot of athletes um, that – they deal with this constant idea of wanting to be better, but also understanding where you're at and saying that, yes, I'm good. But even though there's someone who else like around the world might be better than you at something. And so you recognize that there's an opportunity for growth and not necessarily just dogging on yourself for being bad at this one thing. But seeing those things as an opportunity, like, okay, like my triceps aren't as strong. I just got to, you know, work on that for a little while. I think that a lot of athletes struggle with that. A lot of people struggle with that. I also think it's it's hard in a in a sport that doesn't necessarily get the most amount of recognition. You know, it's not it's not football. It's not it's not on TV all the time. It's it's quite niche, but it's a it's a niche that's growing and becoming more of a um, a household name powerlifting. And so I think there's a it is a hard, a hard balance. I mean, I, I've struggled with it, and I feel like I've talked to a lot of other athletes that continue to struggle with that as well. It's tough. Yeah, it's it's hard, and I think it's easily it, it's easy for it to get um, out of hand and, and to the point where it's not only impacting your lifting, but it's now impacting your relationship yourself. I, I personally, I know that it affected you know my entire like even getting an undergrad meant nothing and it wasn't good enough. And it was like everything, every, no matter what it was, it doesn't matter how much money I made or how much weight I lost or how much weight I lifted. It was like this constant. Nope. It's not good enough. It's not good enough, which is stay hungry, but be happy. Right. Mm, I like that. Stay hungry, but be happy. Yeah. yeah. So I, I've been trying to focus a lot more on enjoying enjoying the journey and recognizing all the little wins on the way to the big one. Yeah. I like that. And you know, one one of my, I, so I try to go into weightlifting, right. And one of my coaches that I met, Nolan, he, 
said that you always there. I don't know if this necessarily applies, but if, for some reason, I feel like it does. It's like you always have to live in the gray. Like life is in the gray. It's never always going to be good. And it's never always going to be bad. There's always you're always sitting in the middle, and it's your decision to to see the goods and the bads and and come to a place where you can be content. Is the way I I kind of took took that, and I think that carries a lot of value. Absolutely, I mean that that kind of speaks to perspective. Yeah, because rarely are things black and white where we can shift our perspective or our relationship to the thing where we're yeah we can find contentment or we can find joy or we can find peace with the thing, which you know with a different perspective you might find pain or distraught or self judgment. I like it. So I I have some notes down here in here, and one thing that I wanted to talk to you about or ask you about. Or a couple different things still, but did you ever consider going into weightlifting versus powerlifting? Um, no, because <laughs> I sucked at it. <laughs> I couldn't do a front squat. It was funny when I got to, to you know, my high school coach John Mitchell was a you know big strength and conditioning guy, and they all love Olympic movements. And so he tried for a while to teach me how to do a front squat. And by the end of senior year, I could do a decent front squat um but i hated it and um you know we did power cleans when i was in high school for football and i had trash form and we were out there power cleaning in football cleats <laughs> on wood on, a, on wood you know sweat is just all over the ground uh there's no ac in the box you know all that good stuff <laughs> now i never i never considered it um I don't know. It's just, it was never, never really piqued my interest. That's fair. Yeah. I, I think the only reason that I wanted to switch over was because potentially, you know, it, it's an, it's in the Olympic games, right? Like it's not the world games, but it's the Olympic games. And that was attractive to me, but now they're kicked out of the 2028 Olympics. So, well, there goes that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole mess in itself. I know there's a lot of people who switched over for the opportunity, you know, Preston Turner, you know, one of my yeah. friends was, that's right. Converted to weightlifting. His hopes was like, yeah, I want, I want to get to the Olympics. So that's what I'm doing this for. Um, yeah. When he, when he switched over, he was trying hard to convince me, like, yeah, you should try it out. I'm like, mm, nah. <laughs> I think I'm good on this side. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think powerlifting is the, the right way to go. I think at this point, just, Weightlifting's, I think powerlifting is growing. You know, with with the separation uh, USAPL had from the IPF, I think USAPL will continue to grow. Powerlifting America will continue to grow in, the, in their own different respects. Um, do you have an idea of which one you're going to compete in, or have you planned that far ahead? Um, so I lifted for the U.S. Virgin Islands team at Worlds, and uh, I'm planning on staying with them for the foreseeable future. Okay, very cool. Um, so then, yeah, continuing yeah. to to compete in the IPF rather than only USAPL. Yeah, for sure. Definitely continue to compete in the IPF. Why is that? Why, why make point, that move? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to look at Worlds. I'm trying to look at Worlds, and I'm trying to win World Championships. That's my, those are my goals right now. And if I won USAPL, I wouldn't be able to do that. So I'm trying to go where, at least for us, you know, equipped lifters, the highest competitive stage 
is IPF Open Worlds. Uh, it might be different for raw lifters for sure, and I don't knock anybody for staying USAPL or going, you know, whatever, which way. Um, but for equip lifters, I'm trying to go highest competitive stage is IPF Open Worlds, and I competed at for USBI last year. I like how that fed felt and the organization out there in support of it. So I'm cool staying right where I'm at. Very cool. It's to me it's it's attractive that USAPL is paying their athletes. I think along with money comes more opportunity for corruption and uh, but it's it's on any any platform, any any anywhere you, you're gonna find that. But it's kinda nice that, you know, did it for so long for free, now being able to get paid for it, you have athletes that are actually like making real money. Uh, out of the sport, do you know if uh, they have geared lifting in USAPL now? Um, that's a good question. I'm I'm pretty sure they still do. Um, you know, it also makes me think of are they're going to do cash meets for geared lifters because I haven't seen any of that. A lot of the focus has been on wall lifting. Um, so I hope for for all the for all the geared lifters. So in the USAPL, they can get an opportunity to you know, win a couple grand here and there. Have you ever wanted to monetize your your time in powerlifting at all? Um, yes and no. Yes, for the sake, it'd be great to have extra money. I mean, who doesn't love extra money? No? Yeah. Um. No, because like I don't feel like I it's that important to me. Um, like the like the the work that will be required in like doing like a, a YouTube channel or a really like high profile Instagram page. Um, that's not that important to me. Associated with powerlifting. That's yeah, fair. I feel kind of like feel kind of old school in that in that respect of like I just kind of do it because I love it and you know I'll coach people for free. Um, I'll give people free stuff all the time. I'll give out free knowledge at any time because um, that's kind of how I was raised in the sport. That's I good. think that's just like like not not saying that's like good or bad or like you know making making money off of the sport is good. I think it's great. I think that's awesome that people are able to monetize, um, you know, their their name and their image and their their information. And all. I think that's fantastic. I think that further legitimizes the sport in itself, and it grows the sport and grows the audience. More money means more opportunities, means more sponsors, means meets in cooler places. You know, all that stuff. Um, but I'll just be on the sidelines cheering those people on and clapping uh, as I see it. How many years, I guess, how old are you and how many more years do you, I mean, I guess, I guess that's my, my first question. The reason I ask it is how much longer do you plan on competing in powerlifting? I mean, body definitely takes a toll after some time and lifting heavy weights the way you do is insane. Uh, how long do you plan on doing this? Is it until you want to stop pretty much? Uh, any Any timeline that you have there? Um, so I'm 29 right now, um, and I've, you know, I've said to myself, like, yeah, 
I'll do this for like another five or six years um, if I have a shot at winning open world titles. Then after that, I'll shut it down and then maybe I'll come back, you know, as a master's lifter or something like that. You know, but then, you know, I went to, you know, when I was in Norway for Worlds, I was seeing guys like, you know, Sergei Fedosinko and Yoslav Olek and, you know, all these guys who are kind of you know, getting up in age. There are Worlds every single year, kind of, you know, without, without a second thought, like they're there still doing it. You know, I imagine both because they love it and both because they look at the nominations and like, you know, I'm right there. So I've thought about it more recently and you know, if I'm if I'm still there and I have a shot, you know, I might as well keep doing this because you never know when it's going to be over. I never know when I won't be able to ever squat again. So I might as well take as many opportunities as I can and you know, just kind of live life to the fullest. And I feel like it's not... It's not taken away from other parts of my life. It only adds to this point. That's fair. Have you always been... Yeah, you're good at all three lifts. Exceptional, obviously able to make it to where you have. Has deadlift always been, like, your thing? Or did it it ever fluctuate between squat and deadlift? Um... Yeah, I feel like deadlift has always been, always been the lift. Um, squat was was a close second. I feel like, but deadlift it just always felt really comfortable, and I felt like my technique was always pretty good. And it was just like in a different um, kind of percentile when compared to other people. I mean, it, it's insane. I, I remember seeing you. I mean, I don't know. I can't remember what you deadlift down to be honest with you, but. I just, 830 pounds-ish is what I remember last seeing. Uh, what did you deadlift at this last meet? So this last meet, I only, only got my opener. I didn't have a good deadlift day. So I hit 804. Um, but at Nationals, I think I hit a uh, range of 91 keys. I don't know what that is in pounds. I don't know what that is in pounds. Yeah. For 400 keys, is 881. So Yeah, something like 870. That's insane. That's an insane number for someone who weighs 105 pounds or 105 kilos. That is just insane number. I mean, there's by a lot like biomechanical advantages you have, right? I mean, looking at you, you have longer arms, and I mean, you're fair. How tall are you? I'm about five ten. So fairly tall. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but like you just, I mean, your deadlifts is insanely sick. You know what the thing is? Is my I have a short torso. Uh-huh. I think that like that's the main biomechanical advantage. Is I have a short torso. My arms are yeah, they're long, but they're not like crazy long. I'm five ten. I probably have about a six foot wingspan, six one wingspan. Okay. So a longer wingspan, but. You know, not wild. My dad has a crazy wingspan. My dad has the same wingspan that I do. He's five foot five. What? That's a wingspan. Yeah, it's wild. That is insane. It's crazy. You would never know because he's huge, right? So his arms kind of bow out a little bit. But yeah, his wingspan is the same as mine. Damn. Yeah, he's a he's a big dude. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, my biomechanical advantage is my torso is short, so that even. 
decreases the ROM kind of where I lock out the without a doubt are there any you know just i you know we're gonna have listeners i I would imagine that are in the powerlifting world are there any things that you've done that that you've found any accessories or any variations of either sumo conventional keeping conventional still inside your training program along with doing sumo that you feel has given you some benefit um, definitely reverse hypers. I mean, that's, that's something I keep in a heavy rotation in my programming. Are you um, heavy? Like, do you, are you, do you load them heavy or is it volume? Um, I would say it's more kind of like time under tension while doing the movement. Okay. Um, so I'll load, I'll load it up as heavy as I can, but I'm not swinging it, you know, like Louis Simmons or anything like that. I'm trying to, bring it up and, you know, you know, create like a straight line with my body and then control the weight kind of back down. Um, so I'm constantly under tension while doing the movement. But yeah, I'll load that thing up as heavy as I can go, but I'm still doing like four sets of eight or something like that. Gotcha. I'm trying not to stick it. So focusing on the eccentric portion of that movement, just nice and slow, uh, or at least controlled. Do you, did you learn all of these things as a as a like a, like reading through books as a, as a kid, or you know I say kid, but somebody in in high school? Like, did you do your own research, or did having your dad kind of already have the the applied knowledge kind of give you that foundation? Um, definitely more so my dad. I didn't do any reading in high school. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I barely, I, I barely did the reading for actual classes. <laughs> uh, uh, but no, I did a lot of independent research as I got to UT. Um, I don't know if you know this, but they have like the, uh, the Stark, uh, museum for sports and physical culture, uh-huh. um, up there at UT. And, you know, they have all kinds powerlifting specific memorabilia and articles and books uh, along with bodybuilding and strongman and you know they have the first you know bench press from you know the 70s in Nebraska um, they got stone deadlift bars in there from the 20s wow. um, all kinds of stuff but anyways they have a huge library in there every powerlifting USA ever printed so yeah, I spent some some hours and some days in there, you know, reading and just kind of learning, learning about the history. But the funny thing is, like, as I read a lot of stuff and did some independent research and even kind of like the new stuff, um, it just kind of corroborated what I had did with my dad. Um, so if anything, it became less of, oh, my dad just said this to do this. I guess this is the right thing. It, it gave it just, you know... Uh, in sources, right? It gave a legitimacy um, outside of this is just my father and he helps me out. It solidified it. Is this, do you have any other hobbies outside of powerlifting? Yeah. I mean, I, I collect vinyl records. Um, I'm big into vinyls. Very cool. Um, What's your favorite that, vinyl? Love listening. Oh, my favorite, my favorite vinyl. That's a hard question. Top three. Maybe Bootsy Collins, 
Bootsy Collins, Glory Hollow Stupid. Um, that's a good one. And I bought Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly on vinyl because that's my favorite album. That's an amazing album. For sure. It's probably those two. And those probably like represent like my music interests. Like I'm I'm big into hip hop. But love me some old school 70s psychedelic funk. Psychedelic funk. Yes, sir. So. Yeah, Bootsy Collins, Funkadelic, uh, Parliament, all that good stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some of those and I'm going to have to go listen to them while I'm in the gym next time. So, last couple things here. Uh, being in... And being in Japan, it's a place I've always wanted to go and visit. Um, just this is literally just personal interest, to be honest with you. How's the food? The food is amazing. Oh man, I think that's what I'm most jealous of. I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> uh, Okinawa is is interesting because it's there's a a lot of different mixing of cultures. And it's been like that since like, you know, like the 11th century, um, we're mixing up Chinese culture and Korean culture and then just like insular Okinawan culture and Japanese culture. Like it's, you know, culture that diverse just within that, but then like this large influence of American culture post-World War II. Um, so on this island, you can get, you know, anything you ever dreamed of as far as food you can get. But like just like the sushi has been amazing, like the rice itself has been just like I don't know. The rice is just good, man. I don't even know how to explain it. Like it's, it's not it's, American I haven't rice. eaten rice. Yeah, I haven't eaten rice like that before. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So like the you know, the particular Japanese food has been great and I've eaten some things I never even thought I would ever eat. But I've had I've had good Tex Mex over here. I've had good Italian food over here. I've had good jerk chicken over here. Damn. Like it's there's everything here. Damn. Is it a city life? Is it pretty pretty urban? Um so there's parts of the island that are yeah, like city life. Naha is the, the big city on the island and that's kinda down south and it's just like any other metropolitan area. But there's a lot of rural areas up here, too, and a lot of farming areas and cultural sites, too. These have big lots of land, especially up north. It was kind of a mix. Very cool. One place that I definitely want to go visit, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, do you have any plans, like how long you're going to be there? Uh, so... I should be here for two years at the minimum. Um, yeah, two years minimum, I'll be here. So 2023, and then I might be coming coming back home to Texas. Might. Might. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see what the what the plans hold. <laughs> yeah, I, I, know, I know I said that was going to be the last thing, but I, I want to ask real quick. I mean, has it been a an interesting learning experience teaching mental health to the population you're currently involved with has been difficult? No, I wouldn't say difficult. I think it's been 
different from what I've done before. So previously, I was working at a counseling center um, up at UT. So that was more of people are coming to me for services. Um, here, I'm having to go to go to people. <laughs> I'm having to go to the people and seek out, you know, the squadrons and the units and initiate conversations, build trust with people, build rapport, and then ultimately where they can then feel comfortable enough to come to me for services. So a lot of my job is just decreasing barriers, decreasing stigma, increasing education, and me being the initiator of that. So I think if anything it was difficult, it was just me getting comfortable with that role reversal a little bit at first. Those are big shoes to feel to fill in, in a in a sensitive population. I mean, that's it's not a not an easy task. I, I would I would assume just that I think the the idea is you know mental health is and I could be wrong entirely, but not necessarily the priority, right? It's like that idea of just you know not being not necessarily not being content, but like this like this is where I'm at. This is part of the job, and kind of being okay with maybe being unhappy. Do you think, have you found that that's a reality or is that just entirely an assumption that I'm wrong on? I mean, I think there's a little bit of that, right? I mean, one of the things I hear a lot of people say over here is embrace the suck. So, you know, that's just kind of the reality sometimes of specific jobs in the military. I don't think it's that mental health isn't a priority. I think it's just sometimes a stigma that is attached to if I seek out this service, are other people going to know about it? And is that going to affect my career? Um, or, you know, if I seek out the service and they're already backed up and I got to wait you know, three, four, five months, you know, what's going to be the point? Um, so our job is just kind of to that stigma attached to seeking services first off, which I think is significant in the military. Um, and then just being accessible. You know, being that, you know, you can come to my office at any time. If I'm in the door, you can talk to me. You know, or if I'm out, you know, on the flight line, standing next to an F-15, and you talk to me, you can you can pull me aside and we can we can chat. Um, so yeah. All about increasing, increasing accessibility. It's freaking awesome. You know, the, I mean, we we all have mental health, right? Like, we all have issues, problems, and concerns. Um, no matter what, it's it's all about do we have the space, um, the comfortability to talk about those things. And I think what we can do working within the system is create a context where people feel comfortable in doing that. So it's both. We own responsibility of that as a system. We're trying to create that environment. Have you personally gone through, I mean, if you want to be asking, gone through therapy yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I feel like that makes it a lot easier to, to talk about. Just like, you know, if you're a powerlifter, it's a hell of a lot easier to, to talk about powerlifting, right? And you understand from a practical perspective. Uh, do you think that that helps you? Absolutely. It's been, so I started therapy when I was in grad school to be a therapist. And I was like, I had never been to therapy before that. And I was like, you know what? I should probably try it to see what it's like from the client side. 
Um, and so I didn't even know what, it, it was weird. Like, I'm learning all these skills about how to be a therapist. And this is how you do it. I've shadowed people and all this stuff. But even that first time I went to therapy, I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do anymore. What do they want me to talk about? What am I supposed to say? My whole life I had gone through it like, oh, you know, I'm fine. Nothing's wrong. I'm good. Everybody has a lot worse than I do. Blah, 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 blah. So for me, it was initially just figuring out, well, how do, how do I do therapy? And how do I let myself feel? How do I bring down my walls so I can be vulnerable in this space and be real in the space and not kind of minimize what's going on in my life and what's happened before. And so being in the therapeutic process, it's really kind of opened me up and it's really opened my perspective up. And I feel like I know a lot more about myself, which is helpful just as a human, you know, just kind of walking around the world, but also really helpful as a therapist. So I know what's going on for me when I'm sitting in a room with somebody and I can talk about that. We can have like a really explicit conversation about the exchange that happens between our brains sometimes. How did you allow yourself to, to kind of break down that wall? Was it a matter of just just talking repetitive, like just continue to, to speak um, just about like your day and then they ask you questions and they, they kind of guide it? I know there's different... Um, processes that different therapists can take but how did you kind of break into that world for yourself i think the first step for me was deciding this is a person that i could trust and this was a person that wasn't going to judge me if i did open up i had this fear of like oh if i really talk about what i feel about certain things Experience of experiences I've had in my life that you know, maybe this person won't think it's a big deal or they minimize it like I do, and it'll just further justify that you know it's not really real. So I think that's just through kind of like <clears throat> initial rapport building and kind of talk, and maybe it is just kind of staying on the superficial level of talking about your day, what's going on for me in the current, you know, or what's going on for me as far as job stress. Um, and then I just had to make a decision after a couple of weeks. All right, all right, like what? What am I really here for? What What is really bothering me? What impacts my life? And making that decision and what I want to talk about, and then bringing that to my therapist, and then taking a risk of just kind of diving in and being vulnerable. I think whenever you're vulnerable with somebody for the first time, you don't really know how they're going to receive it until you do it. You just have to work off of the data that you've had previously that kind of lets you lean in towards maybe this could be a thing. But ultimately, you just have to jump off jump off that cliff and dive into the water and get in there and you know trust that that person is going to be able to hold the therapeutic environment and hold you kind of as a person uh, emotionally and continue to let you kind of open up. And then, you know, after you're in the deep water, you can open your eyes and you can see, you know, the ocean that's down there and everything that's in there and be more aware of yourself. Damn. I feel like, I feel like I was just therapized. Uh, <laughs> that was good. I mean, that was, I, I mean, 
I've been in therapy for years and that's, that's kind of the reason I guess I wanted to ask and, you know, it's, this is what you do for a living. And I don't know that, that summary, that description was, I think, very powerful, like, and so true and real. And I think hard a lot of the times, like it, trusting that that person is not going to judge you, I think is, is a big piece, you know, because like throughout our daily life, I think we assume that those people are, everybody around us is going to judge a specific way. And sometimes people do, don't get me wrong. But I think, I think you learn that you can speak your mind and continue to, to grow with those around you. And then those who are going to judge you, then, I mean, those aren't going to be the people that you're going to keep around, but the ones that you can open up with and become vulnerable and, and trust and, and truly, I guess, love and build a relationship with, those are the ones that, are going to stick around. Those are the ones that are meant to stick around. Right. Um, I mean, not only do you make yourself better through that process of, of jumping out into that ocean and, and realizing all these things, you also make all of your relationships better. The relationship with yourself and the relationship you have with everybody else around you becomes that much better. And I like the, the analogy of being able to, whenever you're in the, in the airplane and you need to put that mask on, before you help anybody else, it's, you know, you, the reason that they, they tell us to do that is you got to make sure that you're okay so that you can help other people and you can be your best for others. Uh, and, you know, if you're going out every single day and, and drinking and then you try to have a session with a, with a client who's having issues with drinking the next day, it, you're not going to be your best person for them and they deserve the best that you can offer. Uh, so I think, I, I couldn't have, and that it was a powerful, powerful description. It, it was awesome. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, therapy has been extremely helpful um, for me, just from a personal level and a professional level. Uh, but, you know, I want to say it's not for everybody. You know, therapy isn't for everybody. Um, but at the same time, you don't know if it's not for you until you try it out. You know, so I encourage everybody to, to, to try it out. And sometimes you got to try out a couple different therapists to find the right style. Um, but personally, it's been it's been extremely helpful for me. I've been in therapy for years now as well, about three or four years, kind of on and off. And um, yeah, uh, I think it's it's opened me up to, like you were saying, have better relationships with people. And with myself, for sure. I love it. Well, I, 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 you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time, and so I just want to say I appreciate you coming on and taking the time to to talk and share a little bit about your story. And I'm excited to continue to watch you lift and hopefully uh, continue to grow a friendship and a relationship with with you. And it's just you know we're, we're in the same community in the same world. I just don't necessarily know you the best. And so I think that'd be kind of cool to, to continue to, to cultivate that. Uh, so again, thank you for coming on. Uh, I don't know if you want to say anything before you, you sign off, but we're going to, we're going to sign off here in a little bit. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Ben. I mean, this was an amazing conversation. Um, so yeah, just appreciate you having me on and, um, yeah, maybe looking forward to doing another time. Beautiful. Alrighty guys, thank y'all for tuning in. 
and we'll see you next time.